Tennis IQ podcast. I'm Brian Lomax. And I'm Josh Berger. And today we have an interesting episode for you where, based on a listener question, we're going to be discussing how, uh, how tennis players can, can do a better job handling their emotions on the court. Um, so we'll start with reading this question. Um, again, just as a reminder, all questions, any questions or any thoughts about the mental side of tennis can be sent to Tennis IQ Podcast at gmail.com. All right, well, here's the question. So managing emotions on the court, specifically with individual youth. I work with a competitive, I work with competitive youth female athletes. I notice they all expect to win. When things aren't going well, they react negative, slap their knee, throw their towel, hit and slam the racket, and especially use negative self-talk. I find a lot of times they ask themselves why. Why would you hit that? Why would I do that? One thing I've worked on a lot with them is developing and implementing a reset. That said, I'm curious on your thoughts about helping them change their perspective. I want them to realize it's okay to make a mistake, to miss hit a ball, to double fault. Due to, due to the high expectations from their coaches and families, it seems they expect to be perfect. Thanks for your time. All right, Brian. So uh, where, where would you start from here? What, what, what are your first thoughts? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think there's a lot of good stuff in that in that email. There's a lot of things that we where I, I think we want to hit on. Um, you know, specifically expectations, self talk, perfection. Um, but I think it really comes down to, or like I think it begins with understanding why tennis is such a difficult sport from a mental and emotional perspective. So I, I just want to throw out a few things, Josh, and and have you kind of reflect back to me your, your thoughts on this. So um, I think if we look at the, the nature of the sport, especially the structure of the scoring system, we play a point and we stop and it's, it's, and then we get, you know, 20, 25 seconds before the next point starts. Um, so that leads to a moment where we get to judge ourselves or judge what just happened. And it might be, am I a good player? Am I a bad player? Was that a good point? Bad point? I made a mistake. And so after each point, we're, we're, we're potentially judging ourselves, which is what we see in this, you know, this listener email. Um, I think also tennis is tough because the scoring system tricks you into thinking points are more important than they really are. And so, you know, there was a mention of, you know, thinking you have to be perfect. But you don't need every to win every point to win a match. And in fact, and you know, Josh, you had mentioned this in a previous podcast episode, you know, in one of Novak Djokovic's best years, he only won 53% of the points he played, which means he's losing 47 points out of every 100, yet he does okay. You know, I think many of us would trade places with him from a tennis career perspective, right? Um, so, you know, I think if, if you look at that under normal circumstances, you really only have to win a few more points than your opponent. Um, I'm probably not going to touch on this today in terms of the structure of, of matches, but, you know, because of how games are set up, certain points do end up being a little bit more important than others. So, for example, in college tennis, a deuce point is there's more weight on that than, say, the first point of a game. Right. Would you agree with that, Josh? Absolutely. Those, those, uh, those no-add deuce points are, can, can, can be really a make or break um, in college tennis and, you know, in, in more and more uh, match situations now that, where it really comes down to that one point. Absolutely. Yeah. And how many times have we heard players come off the court and say, oh, I, I lost all the deuce points? So, so often, so often, I mean, I, I think oftentimes it's, you know, it's a legitimate reason. One of the reasons why they lost sometimes maybe it's an excuse, but it, it really goes to show how certain points are really, really more important than others. And those few points here and there can really, can really make a match for a player. Yeah. Agreed. So uh, I think a couple other things to realize about points is that, um, you know, certainly that losing points is normal. I also think, I think sometimes players get a little upset with how they lose points. Yet, does that really matter? So, for example, if I hit a ball and it goes over the fence, 
And it's kind of an embarrassing error. Um, do I lose more than one point for that? Or does that, do I, you know, is it this, does it count the same as by missing the line by, you know, an eighth of an inch? They count, they count the same. It doesn't really matter. So um, I, no disrespect to the sport of figure skating here, but this is not figure skating. This is, you know, the style and technique and all of that stuff. It doesn't matter to a certain extent. It's just, you know, do you know how to navigate the, the a set in a match? Do you know how to get the ball from point A to point B the way, you know, the way you want to? Um, so, and we, you know, I think our discussion of, in episode three, the stages of a set in a match and navigating that, I think that's probably a good thing to listen to when it comes to trying to manage your emotions. Because I think we did talk a lot about that in the, in that regard. Um, so I think the last piece I'll touch on here, I think with tennis that makes it difficult is, and this is probably true of all sports, is the idea of expectations. Yeah. Going out on there and, and, and having a certain expectation in mind, you know, and so I know we were just talking about that. So, you know, I want to hear your perspective on the whole expectations thing. Yeah. I mean, I would say, uh, you know, the expectations and uh, a player, as soon as they, as soon as they see the draw for the tournament, or as soon as they know who they're against, they're oftentimes players' minds go immediately to what is that player rank? Are they ranked higher than me? Are they, What's their UTR? Exactly. Are they, you know, Oh, they, they're uh, 0.5 ahead of me on the UTR ratings, or this, this player is one point below me. And as soon as, as, soon as they see that, or maybe they, they see the player hit, or they've heard about the player, and immediately, oftentimes, players will jump to those expectations. I, that player is better than me, so I expect to lose, or I expect it to be really tough, or, which I think is often more problematic, uh, th- this player is worse than me. This player is ranked so low. Their UTR is so low. Uh, I-, I expect to win. And I think those those expectations lead to so many issues. You're When you're expecting to win, you're not going to be doing everything that you can possibly do to, to uh, be a great competitor and to perform at your highest level. You're going to expect it to be easy. And as soon as you hit that first roadblock, it's, you're not going to be ready for it. You, you haven't, won't have mentally prepared for that moment because you'll expect the other person to just, um, you know, lie down and, and uh, ma- make it really an easy day for you. So um, I think expectations, whether they be positive or negative, um, really detracts from competing uh, at your best on any given day. I think a much better mindset to have is to just, is to try to go in and do everything that you can do. Try to control your side of the court, try to play in your best possible way and also you know notice whatever the person on the other side of the net is doing um, and adjust to that and expect it to be challenging rather than um, you know setting out these expectations of winning or losing before a single shot has been struck um, I think a great example of somebody uh, like uh, somebody who does a great job of this is Nadal where anytime they'll ask him um, about an up like maybe it's the second or third round and they'll say what do you think are your chances of winning this tournament? And he'll say, Hey, I have a, I'm playing this such and such opponent next. I know I need to uh, do everything in my power to, um, you know, to, to play a great match or else I'm not going to have any chance. So he knows that he can't overlook anybody, even if somebody's ranked significantly lower than him. And I think it's the same thing. You know, anytime you get out in the court, having the expectation of winning or losing is oftentimes what leads to these frustrations as soon as, soon as you reach some uh, some pushback yeah and i think that's you know that comes with competing in an individual sport maybe a yep. little bit more so than a than a team sport because that i think the result is so much more personalized for us in a certain way and 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 that might be why we are, you know are i think our emotions are also highly related to our self talk our beliefs, our attitudes, and uh, and I think that more of that comes out of that individual sport. This sort of tennis being a fighting combat sport, and and so I think you know for everybody who's listening to this, if you've chosen to play tennis, you know you've chosen a very different or very difficult sport to play mentally and emotionally. So um, 
I think it becomes a challenge, you know, throughout our lives to try to manage this whole process. It's not easy to figure out. Um, so, Josh, when you think of the, you know, because we're talking about managing emotions, what 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 emotions are we trying to manage? Actually, what um, you know, if if you think about it, what what comes to mind are the emotions that um, that occur for tennis players on the court. I think I think there's a number of them. Um, I, I mean, anger anger is a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, players getting angry uh, that that they're losing. Players getting angry that they don't feel like they're performing well. Maybe making too many errors. Um, maybe they're just embarrassed about you know about the situation. What's going on? Um, I think anxiety and uh, nerves are definitely a big one as well. Um, and we, again, we talked it during episode three about um, certain times in a match when players might be more likely to, to, to feel those feelings, um, such as the start of a match and such as trying to close out a match. Um, so th- those are a couple that, uh, that come to mind right off the bat. How, how about you, Brian? What are, yeah. uh, I, 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 I like the ones that you came up with. I, I think, you know, when we think of anxiety and nerves, to me, the basic emotion behind that is fear. Yep. We're, we're afraid of something and then our minds tend to look at the negative outcome or go to like, uh, like we mentioned in that episode, loss aversion, protecting and so forth. Um, I think resignation, giving up that, that can happen, right. Depending on how, how badly the performance is going, you know, six Oh four one, you might be like, I'm out of here. And that, that's an emotion. Sometimes, um, sometimes referred to as tanking, right? Yes. The player- Get exactly. to the point where they just they they just give in, and uh, you you just see the the quality of their play just take a noticeable drop. Yeah, and even then, even sometimes uh, it may not be super noticeable. I think anytime you have a drop in your effort level, yep, whether that be physical or mental, you're actually in that tanking zone. Because a lot of players, and you've probably heard this, oh, I've never tanked in my life. Well. Have you gone through the motions at all? Uh, that's sort of in the tanking response because you're not fighting 100%. Um, I think on the positive side of emotions, because I think there, there's some of that we want to talk about, um, whether this is a positive or negative, but I think confidence in itself is, I would classify that more as an emotion in a way. It's going to be a feeling, yeah, emotion. Um, and so that can go up and down. That can get affected by things. I think um, a person could be calm. That's an emotion out there. They could be easygoing. Maybe they're joyful and happy, those types of things. Um, and the reason I think it's important for us to look at these emotions is that, you know, you and I are like, we're different people. We're different players. The emotions that work for me may or may not work for you. You know, and so there's this concept in sports psychology that each one of us has different emotions that are optimal for us. And, and to give a, you know, an example that many people I think would be familiar with would be Pete Sampras. So when Pete Sampras was playing on the tour, um, especially early on in his career, he wasn't necessarily number one yet, but he was a top 10 player. He'd already won the U S open. He had had a conversation with John McEnroe in which John had, um, implored him to be more fiery and emotional on the court. And if you've read Sampras's book, The Champion's Way, you'll know that he didn't react, not, not that he reacted badly to that, but he didn't buy into it just because that wasn't him. That wasn't his personality. And, and if, you know, being objective, Pete Sampras did pretty well on his own by being that, that calm player. Uh, but many times, you know, and, and I'm singling out John McEnroe here, but there are other people who would say such things that this player needs to show more emotion. This needs to be, that player needs to be f- more fiery and tennis won't be the only sport in which you hear that. Um, but we have to know that that's not necessarily optimal for every athlete. You know, in tennis, we've had players like Bjorn Borg and Chris Everett who have been extremely calm, cool, and collected, and yet were very successful at the top of their games. And on the flip side, you've got players like McEnroe, Connors, 
and even uh, uh, Nadal to a certain extent, who are much more uh, about showing their emotions. Um, Nadal more so on the positive side. The other, those other two weren't afraid to show their negative sides. But the, I think the distinction comes in is knowing, you know, which emotions work for you. So if we were, I think, instead of looking at positive and negative emotions, can we look at them from a, a functional and a dysfunctional perspective? And maybe an example of this would be, let's say you're a player and you get upset about something that happens on the court. Maybe you don't like the way a particular point went. And you're like, all right, come on, man, you can do this. And you're kind of maybe talking to yourself in a negative way, getting on yourself. But if, it sh- if you're able to channel that into focus and motivation going forward, that to me is a functional use of a, you know, quote unquote, negative emotion. So in that, in that case, it could be, it could be functional. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Josh? Have you seen, you've probably coached some players that have been able to do that and probably coached more players that haven't. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking, um, before the show a little bit that, um, and, and, and my view, you know, there, there certainly are examples of players who like McEnroe are able to use, um, anger and frustration and able to really channel that into, being more motivated or more focused and more driven to whatever the task at hand is to, you know, to the rest of the match. Um, sometimes you'll see players who maybe, maybe it's a close line call that the other player makes um, in junior tennis or USTA league or whatever it is. And they use that one call as motivation for the rest of the match. Right. I, I really want to beat this player. Um, so sometimes I think you, you do see, players doing a really good job of this but oftentimes i think especially with the emotion of um, anger and frustration it it ends up boiling over and players lose control and rather than sticking to thinking about the the playing style or the game plan that they that they have or thinking about um being aware of the player on the other side of the net and how they're playing and their strengths and weaknesses rather than thinking about all these types of things they're consumed with the anger and the frustration, and that's all they can think about. And they, the, their performance suffers. So I, I would say that there are the, the there are I would say the exceptions who are able to really use those negative emotions in a in a fruitful way, you could say, um, and really use it to their advantage. Um, but oftentimes, I think more than not, especially when people aren't taking an intentional approach um, to to mental skills and to sports psychology. And they just kind of, you know, they, they don't say, okay, when I'm feeling angry, what, what next, right? Having an intentional approach um, before it happens, but they just sort of let it happen and they explode. Um, so I, I would say that, that oftentimes, unfortunately, I see players who um, they, they, they let these emotions get the better of them. And then because of that, their, their performance goes down. Um, I was actually just thinking as you were talking, Josh, a wonderful example of somebody who was able to change this to go from anger being really dysfunctional and, and hurting his performance to someone who doesn't do that anymore is Roger Federer. Yep, absolutely. There's, I don't know that there's a, a better example of, of seeing it because he did it even as an adult. It seemed, I think it may be like the first three years of his pro career, maybe like 18 to 21 or maybe even later, he is, his, his behavior on court was not, not very good. And I think you mentioned like sort of things boiling over. I think that's what we, we saw with a, a young Roger Federer and then he figured it out. Right. Yeah. So, I, I think, uh, no, I remember hearing, um, you know, I, I think. Growing up, growing growing up, and then yeah, as, as you said, in his early career, he would he would show his emotions. He would break rackets. He would have these outbursts. But to being able to turn that around helped to make him the the champion, the champion that that he became. Absolutely, yeah. And um, I mean, for you could obviously argue that he's become the greatest player in the history of sport. I mean, that's certainly one of those great debate type things. And we're actually, I think, fortunate in the time that we're living in, we have so many 
great players. Um, so there's that. Uh, so let's think now a little bit more about what triggers emotions in tennis. Um, because, they, I mean, there are different things that can trigger emotions, um, both positive and negative. So when you think of that, Josh, what, do, what do you, in your experience as you've coached and worked with players, what have been some of the more common things that, that trigger both positive and negative emotions? Yeah, I mean, the, the first that I would, I would point at is really, um, as, as you said, the, the, the tennis scoring system and how after each point you get that immediate uh, feedback, whether, <sighs> whether you're a winner or you're a loser. And uh, actually going back to uh, one of our earlier episodes, we were talking with Brian Barker, how people take rather than focusing on the process and you know, playing your best brand of tennis and becoming a better player, people take people, they, they let that winning and losing define them. And so then after each point, you're either a winner or you're a loser. And you, you feel that way with, within your ego and within your, your self-worth. So um, I think that I think that immediate feedback and you know whatever happened in that last point can often lead to a lot of emotion, um, especially as we talked about. If you have an expectation to win a match on a given day, and then all of a sudden you look at the scoreboard and it's love forty on, on your on the opening game, and you say, "Uh oh, this this isn't the way it's supposed to happen today." I was supposed to, I'm supposed to win. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be easy. What's going on right now? Um, so I would say the being a little bit too aware of the score and thinking too much about the previous point, rather than having a broader perspective on, hey, this this I'm going to be out here for an hour or two. There's going to be a lot of points that go back and forth. I'm going to win about half of them and lose about half of them. Um, so I, I would say the that that devilish scoring system and those uh, points that can swing one way or, one way or the other. Um, how about yeah. you, Brian? Yeah, I think uh, we're also kind of getting at the, the one of the aspects of tennis that's hard is that this sort of immediate gratification versus delayed gratification is understanding what it is we're actually trying to win when we're out on the court. And I think we've mentioned this in the past. You know, points are a means to you know, different ends, right? So points help you get to games. Games help you get to sets. Sets are what matters when it comes to trying to win a, a match. And we have to understand that, that uh, losing, you know, losing some points, eh, maybe doesn't matter. The only thing is really changing from point to point in a match is the probability of one player winning versus another. Um, I remember telling the story, I, I went to a, a junior tennis academy some years ago, and there was a, it was a day where they were doing match play. And two of their best players were playing against each other. It was a 13-year-old boy and a 12-year-old girl. And the 13-year-old boy, really talented, but had some um, emotional management issues. They, the first point of the match was this amazing, probably 30-stroke rally that uh, the 12-year-old girl ended up winning. The boy lost his mind. The scores literally, you know, 15 love in the first game of the set, and he's already lost. Right. And I think... Very often when we see these emotions, we're acting as if we've already lost something. But you haven't. The only thing that's changed is the probability that one person will win the match versus another. And at, at Love 15 in the first game, it's still pretty close to 50-50. You know, especially if the players are re relatively even, don't you think, Josh? No, absolutely, and that's uh, that's a great. I, I hadn't I hadn't heard that story, but I I almost knew where where you were going with that. Just based, <laughs> based on imagining how a, a, you know players oftentimes will feel when things don't go their way right from the start. Yeah. Um, I would say also, um, you know, if players ten, ten, tennis players oftentimes have 
almost a short-term memory in that they can only remember what happened most recently. So one example I have is coaching a player who they, they, they were up against a really tough, really tough opponent. And the first set, I thought they, they they won the set 6-4. I thought they were playing great in the first set. Um, and the second set, they're down 4-1, getting extremely frustrated. And I go, and I, I'm talking to the player. I said, what's going on? And they say, I, I just can't play. Nothing's working. I'm, they're, they're, you know, clearly frustrated. So, I, you know, trying to say, okay. Let's, you know, let's take a step back. First of all, it's 4-1. That's one break of serve, right? Mm-hmm. So, so trying to have, you know, trying to, again, we talked about having the tennis IQ to be aware that just because it's 4-1 doesn't mean it's going to become 6-1 in five minutes. Doesn't doesn't have to. Um, but also trying to have a long enough term memory to remember what happened 20, 25 minutes ago, right? In that first set. You won the first set 6-4. This is a strong player you're up against. What were you doing well that helped you get that result in the beginning? So not being so consumed with what just happened over the last 20 minutes, these last five games where you're down 4-1, maybe you're frustrated because you're not playing your best, but trying to be able to find that level of tennis that you were at in the beginning when you were when you were performing in a way where you were satisfied. Um, so I, I think, I think uh, you know, not allowing whatever just happened in that last point whether it's the first point of the the match or whether it's you know some time in the second or third set or whatever take away from everything else that's going on in the match i think that's a great story that highlights irrational self-talk and rational self-talk so the player in your example completely irrational at that moment I can't play or whatever it was. It was it was just things that were basically just not true, right? And your role, you're coming in, you're you're like you know Mr. Rational and bringing that rational perspective and, and really trying to reset him. And one thing that I think is helpful for players to understand is that there are multiple self talk systems in the brain that are operating at any one time, and very often that initial automatic thought is irrational. It comes from the emotional part of our brain. And so, you know, whoever that player was, wasn't even thinking that it was just like flew out. It almost would be like, if I make a mistake, hit the ball in the net. I'm like, Oh, why did I do that? I I'm not even controlling that, right? That is just coming out. And that's also a bit of what we saw in our listeners email that that automatic, very emotional, often irrational, self-talk system um, is it's the first one. It's also tends to be the loudest one. And for some people, it's the only one that shows up during a match. Now, another self-talk system is, is a slower one comes from a slower part of our brain. It's more rational. And you actually, Josh, in that example, were providing that. And that's actually a great way to train players is to help them understand these rational perspectives so that they can, Followed up themselves. Um, and the reason I bring this up is that, like I said earlier, I think self-talk, attitudes, and beliefs are highly connected to our emotions. Very often, it might be how we're expressing that. And if we can learn to adopt more productive and more rational perspectives about the game, over time, we can train that automatic self-talk system to be more rational, to be a little bit quieter, to let the rational part of the brain drive more of the decision-making and the uh, emotional, emotional management of things. But I think that's, you know, part of our role is to help them see that, you know, so what are, what are your thoughts on that, Josh? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, it's certainly something that has to be trained and, and practiced. I don't think I think it's uh, something where you're never you're never quite there, and you're always striving and working on 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 improving it. I mean, uh, we, we were talking about Roger Federer before, and I think uh, you know we we look at him as somebody who stays really calm the vast vast majority of the time. But uh, I recall once it, I think it was Miami, and again, just the fact that I have to really think back to 
find that one outburst shows the the vast improvements but you know just having having those lapses still of of moments where it still does um come out that frustration but i think back back to your point um i i think it, it is it is a skill that can be trained and um by developing the the, the self-talk over time and by practicing it and having those positive examples um, that you can draw upon is is just so important. Agreed. Um, yeah, agreed. So how about we, um, let's move to some perhaps specific things players and maybe even coaches can do to help play, you know, help manage emotions out there. And how about we start with some some on-court things that um, that you think you would help you think would help players manage their emotions better. Yep. Um, for for me, a, a big one is a routine. Um, having a routine that a player can go to after they after they lose a point. Maybe this isn't something that the player feels that they need after every point. Um, or, but maybe it's only when they really feel that frustration. Um, but you know, I, I, taking a deep breath is a big part of it. Uh, feeling, you know, feeling the feet under, under the ground. Um, I know we're both familiar with the 16 second, 16 second cure. Um, but the, the different pieces of, um, the, you know, grounding yourself and, um, grounding yourself through, through the breath. Uh, feeling, you know, feeling the ground under, under your, your feet, having a clear intention going into the following point, using some sort of self-talk to help pump you up for the following point or to just reset that previous point. But um, being able to get into the present moment through the breath and through a grounding technique and then being able to shift that focus onto the next point that's about to happen. And as as we talked about, you you don't have a lot of time. You have 20 seconds, maybe 25 seconds in between points. So in order to hit each of these pieces, you don't have very long to be sulking and upset about that previous point. If you're, you know, mad and you're yelling at yourself, oh, I can't believe my backhand is so bad, but whatever it is, you know, within five seconds later, you're, you have to play that next point. So being able to take that big deep breath and become aware of the moment and then move on to that next moment and reset is, is huge. Um, so th th to me, a, a routine that can be used on court, um, especially when things aren't going well. So in between points, but it could also be used during a changeover in between sets. If the set really didn't go your way and you're frustrated, um, that, that, that would be a big one for me. Um, me what, yeah, let, yeah. Let me jump in on that because I think, um, I'm, in a hundred percent agreement, and I think another way to look at it, Josh, is and and research on in between point routines and just pre performance routines in general show that when people follow them, they perform better. So, when and when you don't follow them, you know the con, you know the con of that is that you perform worse. And generally, when are the dysfunctional emotions going to come out? When we perform worse. So if we perform better when we use an in-between points routine, we should use an in-between points routine because we're going to yep. perform better, which will then help us also to manage our emotions. Certainly that space in between points, the great time to be going through all that stuff to make sure you're forgetting that last point. Um, you know, our, our listener mentioned having a reset. I think that's a huge part of it. Um, I think, you know, when I look back at my career, I learned a little of this stuff probably too late, not too late, but later, uh, probably in my late 20s. And so, you know, when I was, you know, late 20s and, and before that, my temper could be a problem. And I'm just going to tell this story and, and I'll come back to, to, to why this is about the reset. And I remember about when I was 15 or 16, I was at a clinic at, um, uh, at a local club and I was just losing it that day, Josh. I don't know why, just yelling things, slamming the racket, whatever. And my coach, 
you know, who, you know, he liked me. He knew I was a good kid because off the court, I was not like that at all. I was just perfectly calm kid, but put me on a tennis court and I could behave quite badly. And he's like, Brian, man, you got to calm, you got to, you're losing it. You're just like, you're not playing well. You got to, you got to figure out how to do this. And so I listened to what he said. And so for the next couple of weeks, what I tried to do is just suppress all my emotions. That totally didn't. I just became this very sort of flat, uh, passive player. And I was just sort of like, yeah, whatever. And that didn't work. So then I decided, all right, oh, it's probably better if I act badly and still fight than, than you know, just suppress my emotions and not fight at all. So I postponed that whole thought process to, you know, maybe closer to when I was 30. And I figured out it wasn't an emotional management problem. It was a focus problem, meaning that I was putting all my focus on what had just happened. I wasn't putting enough importance on the next point. Yep. And that is sort of for me where the whole reset button or reset concept came from is that I started to really believe that the next point is the most important point of the match. So in that space of 15 to 25 seconds, my job was to make sure that I was 100% ready to play that next point. And that meant physically, mentally, emotionally. And so I started to develop a reset piece where I would say reset and I would press my vibration dampener as my reset button. And that paid huge dividends. All of a sudden, the temper went away. No more broken rackets. No more throwing them into the back curtain or the back fence. And I was just amazed because it wasn't an emotional management problem. It was a focus issue and it was what I valued. What I thought was important was actually driving my emotions. And when I figured out what the right thing was, everything changed. I'd be curious if, if Roger Federer was a somewhat similar story or not. I don't know that. Um, but I think that, you know, when we talk about having those routines, within that there has to be some sort of reset or however you want to phrase it, maybe just flushing the last point, whatever it is, you know, sort of in that post-point part of the in-between points routine, you've got to dump it. And that could be from a positive perspective too. I mean, you, we talked about this, and I think in the the set, the stages of a set in a match, sometimes players get a little too happy, and you ended up relaxing. And next thing you know, in the beginning of the second set, you're down a break. So it's um, it's really important that we we keep the focus on that next point going through. So what do, what do you think, Josh? Yeah, yeah, I think. Uh, I, I really like that story, and I think having having something sort of a reminder. Um, so having that vibration dampener that that you can um, you know push in um, to remind yourself of that next point that is so important. Uh, you see sometimes players like Maria Sharapova, for instance, will be playing you know sort of making her strings uh, straightening out her strings in between points. Um, it, it, it also that that term that you use the Flush, flushing it, flushing that previous point. It got me thinking of, of uh, Ken Revisa, and uh, who worked. Uh, you know, he unfortunately passed away a couple years ago, but he was very prominent um, sports psychology professional that worked with many different sports, including baseball players. And I know uh, a story that he actually installed, I think, a, a miniature toilet in in the locker room of of one of the teams. Um, and so the the idea is that. Hey, we just made a mistake. Maybe in baseball you make an error or, you know, you strike out or whatever it is. And being able to physically actually flush, flush that um, as almost a symbol or, you know, in, in tennis, maybe you find some other symbol like the vibration dampener, like straightening out the strings, maybe just even something like brushing off your shoulder and saying, okay, that point is in the past and, you know, we got to be able to move on. Um, so having something, having a physical reminder like that is, is so important. Um, and also every time you, you see that vibration dampener, it's even without having to touch it, it's almost that reminder to yourself that, 
of that mindset that you want to have of not being stuck in the past and of whatever just happened and that frustration that comes along with that, but focusing on, Hey, what are we going to do about it? What, what, what comes next? Um, so yeah, I, I really like that story. Um, I think and- you brought up the changeover routine. I think that that's actually a really good opportunity as well. Um, yep. especially from, um, I hear so much about the idea of reminders. We talk about that a lot as sports psych professionals. Um, do we talk enough though about how to implement reminder systems? Because um, one of the things, one of the stories that I enjoy sharing with players is Novak Djokovic's press conference after defeating Roger Federer in the fifth set of Wimbledon 2019. And if we remember, he was down 40-15 on Federer's serve. He came back, he won the match. He actually won fewer points than Federer in that match. And one of the things that he said to me was really, um, it made me feel perhaps more, made me feel better. It was just like, it reminded me that we're all human, including Novak Djokovic. And he said that during the fifth set, he was having a lot of doubts about himself, about his ability to win this match. But he followed that up with, I just have to constantly remind myself that I belong here and that I'm better than the other guy. And the part about that I really liked is, hey, Novak Djokovic, he's number one in the world. He has doubts. He has to constantly remind himself to do this. Now, he's probably got a better way of doing that than, than us, but that's why he's number one. But could we help players with developing, say, uh, a sheet or an index card of reminders that they could be making part of their changeover routine? Yep. Absolutely. So that, you know, that they're starting to think, though, you know, so in a way, you know, in a, in a college tennis match, Josh, you're there. You can be that reminder sheet for your players. But if it's some other event, they don't have you. And that's that's what I like, you know, players to have either a journal or or some sort of sheet of reminders because that's their on-court coach. That's where they get to, you know, get that Josh Berger wisdom and they carry it out onto the court because in the heat of battle, we often forget things. And one of my favorite quotes is from a English philosopher named Samuel Johnson. And he said that um, people uh, don't need to be instructed as much as they need to be reminded. So people know what to do. That doesn't mean they do it. <laughs> they just need to be reminded about those things. So I, I think that could actually be a useful means of, of, of putting into your changeover routine. Because I find some players have in-between points routines, but the changeover routine is weak. I, I, I definitely agree. I think having, as you said, having those reminders on what type of mindset you want to have, how you, you know, certain routines that you want to utilize, a certain way that you want to play. Um, Maybe even it's for a specific opponent and certain things that you want to remember. And it's the heat of the moment. It's, it's six, five in the, in the first set and, you know, things are tight and maybe you're not thinking about all those things. You, you have that 90 seconds where you can take a look, take, you know, a couple deep breaths, have some water and, and remember, I, I really like that quote that you were saying, or that, um, that, that line by Djokovic, I think it shows that, um, and you know, people often talk about imposter syndrome and that even the best in the world. And I think that quote really shows that even the best in the world sometimes don't, you know, even somebody like Djokovic who has accomplished arguably as much or more than anybody in the sport needs to remind himself that he deserves to be there, that he deserves to be in that situation. Um, so I think that is an important reminder for tennis players of all levels that that self-doubt and that imposter syndrome are normal, that, that that'll happen, that you will feel that, you know, m- maybe you're playing, maybe you're playing lights out, maybe you're playing great and you're playing somebody who's ranked higher than you, or you're playing somebody who's has a higher UTR than you. And you start to think, this this person I'm playing is really good. I, I shouldn't be I shouldn't be winning right now. Um, I, I'm getting lucky. 
right? Start starting to say these sorts of things to yourself. And I think recognizing that even, you know, all the best in the world have these, 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 this self-doubt, have this um, imposter syndrome that creeps up on them. So recognizing it as it happens and then being able to remind yourself, and sometimes it's a physical reminder, as you said, something you can keep in your bag. I think also having some affirmations that you can, you can use for yourself, like, you know, like I deserve to be here, or I've been training very hard for this, or I've worked on whatever, my serve or my backhand or my volley um, over these last six months, and I'm really confident in it. But having things like that, that you can, when the going gets tough, you can remind, you can refer to it and you can remind yourself of these things. Um, so I, I, I really like uh, having that, that physical reminder. That's, that's, I think, a great tip. I think that also helps, as you were saying that, it combats or it refutes a lot of the irrational self-talk that comes out because like you were saying, like, or, you know, Hey, I've been working on my serve or I'm, you know, I, I've been playing well, whatever the, some of those statements are, some of those affirmations, those are inherently true. A lot of the other things that you might say like, Oh, you suck. That's just not true. And I think that those reminders can be a way to kind of refute or, um, you know, counteract, counter argue some of the things that you might be saying out there. So, all right, that's good stuff, Josh. So how, now, I think we both recognize that um, there's probably some off-court work involved in learning to manage your emotions on the tennis court. So what, what are your thoughts on some of that? Yeah, um, one, one tool that I, I often suggest with, uh, with tennis players, really um, athletes of any kind, is to, is to use visualization. And oftentimes people think of visualization as literally just trying to imagine and picture yourself winning Wimbledon and sitting on uh, being on center court and you're, you're, you're in the grass and you're um, ecstatic that you just, um, you know, won the, that, that match. And that's, that's, uh, you know, that's, I think one of the things you want to do is visualize those positive moments and the, the, the positive um, aspect that, that could happen on any given day um, and where you, where you want to be ultimately. But also you want to, especially as you're going into a match, you want to visualize and you want to, you want to envision um, anything that, that could go wrong and, and something that likely could go wrong on a given day and have, have a backup plan, have a plan B, have a plan C, so that if your plan A, if um, your game plan or the way that you generally like to play isn't working, uh, maybe, you're, maybe you're generally like to counterpunch and play from the baseline and play really consistent and get, you know be fast and get a lot of balls back. But on that given day, it's not working. So you have to come to net more or you have to go for your forehand more. So visualizing, you know, knowing that that's your plan B or plan C and that you may have to go to those options on, on that day. So you, utilizing the skill of visualization ahead of time and dedicating, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, going through a few scenarios ahead of time so that once you're actually in that situation, it's as if you've already been. Um, so I, I find visualization to be um, another great, great tool that can be used um, off court. And this is something that can be done in a you know high school or college setting in the van or in the bus on the way to a match. It can be done the, the night before at home, it can really be done um, wherever off court. And it'll, it, it pays great dividends um, when you're actually in that situation that you've rehearsed mentally. If we go back to Novak Djokovic, he's a huge proponent of exactly what you just said. Absolutely. And, uh, if we go back to that 2019 Wimbledon, I, I think what we should do is post a link to some of the press conferences that he gave. There's some the, the transcripts. He talked a lot about visualization in one of those. Maybe it was after his quarterfinal or his semifinal and how he – it's a big part of his success, and he visualizes various situations of a match, and he sees himself you know, getting through that successfully. And you know, then when it happens, you feel like you've done it. You've rehearsed being in that situation, and that can also make you feel a little bit more confident, a little bit more at ease. So I think that's a really good way, Josh, because one of the things about playing tennis matches, it often makes it 
difficult to manage the emotions is we don't always have as much experience in playing matches as perhaps we could. And yep. you know, we had this conversation with uh, Jeff Barrett and Tim Donovan about the necessity of playing more and more matches so that it feels more and more normal. And the more normal it feels, the less likely we're going to get emotional about some of these aspects because it, we're used to it more. And I think your point about visualization actually can start to you know, pave that road as well, is you're playing those scenarios over and over in your head so that when they occur on the court, there's no real threat there. You, you get, you've, you've rehearsed that. So I think that's a really good, uh, good way of um, learning to, to manage emotions better. I think for me, um, I'm big on mindsets, perspectives, and um, you know, especially rational perspectives and, and, and developing you know, essentially what I call a personal philosophy. And so I want to help players uh, understand how things really work out there. And we've gone over a few different rational perspectives in this episode today. But the idea of, you know, everyone makes mistakes. Everyone loses points. That doesn't mean you're terrible because of that. doesn't cancel out all the hard work that you've done because you lost a match or you lost a point. Those types of things. But I think, you know, one of my favorite um, mindsets to share is the, the challenge mindset, which is something that's been studied a lot in terms of helping people to build resilience. And essentially, the challenge mindset is about looking at situations and seeing them as a challenge or as an opportunity rather than a threat. And can we embrace that? And one of my favorite quotes around this, this is uh, from the Toltec Empire in Mexico. So there's a bit of a Toltec philosophy connection to this. And I call it the warrior mindset, but it's really about the challenge mindset. And it says the difference between a warrior and an ordinary person is that a warrior takes everything as a challenge, while the ordinary person takes everything as a blessing or a curse. So if we put that into a tennis context, I might be playing you, Josh, and you hit the ball and it hits the top of the tape and dribbles over. I'm like, oh, man, that is so lucky. And maybe that sticks in my head a little bit, right? He's 40-15. He just won that game on that lucky shot. And now I get off. And so – but if I'm if I'm sort of that Toltec warrior guy, I'm looking at it. All right, I accept that, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take on that challenge. I'm gonna come back from that now. And I think that if we can be looking at everything that's going on in a tennis match as a challenge, as an opportunity to get better, it changes how we approach stuff. Yeah. Now it's about hey, I want to play this match. I want to, you know, take this opportunity instead of avoiding it, which often happens with some of our our negative emotions. Um, So that's one of the things I really like to work on with players to see, you know, if they can they can start embracing those challenges more so. Okay. I I would just add on to that Um, when you get to a let's say it's the the tiebreak or let's say it's the third set. There again, there are two ways to look at that situation. Do you look at it as um, something as a threat, or you know, uh, uh, what's going to happen if I lose this match? Um, am I is my UTR going to go down? Um, if you're in a high school or college situation, what does that mean for my spot in the lineup? Am I going to go down in the lineup? Am I going to lose my starting spot? Um, so you can view you can really view any of these situations as a threat, or you can view it as as a challenge, um, as an opportunity, and view it as a way to to prove yourself, to 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 show how how strong you are, how how high of a level you can uh, you can bring. So I, I think you know any situation, and also if you view it in in that way, in that challenge mindset, in that um, in that type of way, you're going to be moving towards it. You're going to be eager for that opportunity to prove yourself. 
eager for the challenge. Okay, this is what I've been working for. Let's go. Rather than, uh-oh, I, I, I have something I could maybe lose here. I could lose my spot in the lineup. I could lose uh, my, my UTR rating, whatever, whatever it is. So it, it, to me, it's also whether, to me, that, that shift in the mindset um, has the impact of whether you're moving towards the, the task at hand, viewing it as, as a challenge, viewing it as an opportunity, or being fearful of it and backing away and almost trying to avoid it. Yeah. And I think you said that well there, that it, it really, it's a choice. Now, a lot of players may not agree with that. They're like, well, that, you know, everybody thinks I should win or all this other stuff. And it's like, yeah, you get to choose the story you tell yourself. And that's a skill. Yeah. And um, it, it's not like you're going to lose ranking points if you're telling yourself an irrational story that works for you. It's really all about how you can, and let's go back to Brian Barker. What can you be saying to yourself that removes pressure? That's the skill. And I think also, um, and again, this is easier said than done, trust me, um, but not, not trying, to lose, trying to lose sight of, of just the result and trying to focus on the process of doing it the right way. So saying, hey, it's, it's a third set tiebreak right now. And I, I lost, you know, you may, maybe you lost the tiebreak, but you, you stuck to your routines. You had a plan going into every point. You played calmly in a way, in a style that you wanted to play, but you ended up losing. The other player maybe played great. Maybe it was come, came down to a couple points. Or you were in that same situation. You ended up winning, but you didn't do any of those things. You didn't try to you know, focus on your breathing, knowing that you might be tight in that situation. You didn't go to any of your routines, but you got away with it and you ended up winning. So I think um, trying to, to help players try to focus more on that process and try to focus on um, doing things the right way and let, sort of letting the results take care of themselves rather than just focusing on the results and being so consumed with winning or losing and sort of disregarding doing these things that we know and probably they know as well will give them the best chance of winning and performing at a high level. I think the third scenario there, Josh, is you don't follow your routines or your process and you lose. Yep, probably more likely. <laughs> and then that's when you come off the court with regrets. And the only thing you learn there is I shouldn't have done that. Yep. Where in your first scenario, where you're doing everything right, but maybe you lose, you can learn much more because you're, you're, you're actually pushing your game forward more. In that third scenario, the only thing you're learning is like, all right, that doesn't work, and I shouldn't do that. Um, but you can push your game much more forward, like, all right, this little adjustment here, maybe that or that, or you give credit to the opponent, you know. And I think it's um, the more we can understand that this match that you're in is probably not the last of your career, meaning that competition is hopefully for you tennis players, it, that it's a lifelong thing. That this is not the last match. This is not the last tournament. This is about this journey that you're on, that you are trying to master this game, mastering yourself, mastering this game. And every day we compete, it's about learning just a little bit more about ourselves, about the game of tennis, about the dynamics of the sport. And using that information to try to be just a little bit better the next time and the next time and the next time. Um, and so even with respect to our emotions, the more I think we can be aware of that stuff, um, and, and the better. So how about we leave I would it? Just, I, I, well, one last thing. Yeah, go one, ahead. One last thing. I would just add on because I think that's, I, I think that's right up there with the most important points. That um, that you whatever just happened. So we talked about those three different scenarios that that could have happened, right? Um, and and maybe, maybe there's a fourth where you did the right things and you ended up winning. But um, any of those situations where maybe you um, whatever the result was and whether you 
tried everything that you felt you could and how you performed. Um, I, I think another another great um, skill that, that can be utilized is journaling, which I know we were talking about as yeah. well, and being able to take that, that past experience um, of whatever just happened in the match, of whatever just happened this past season, and learn from it. Don't just say, don't just say, uh, you know, it's in the past, whatever. I don't even want to talk about it or think about it. But view view it as seriously something that you can learn from. View it as if it's uh, something negative, something maybe you don't want to happen again. How are you going to prevent that from happening again? How are you going to prevent that outburst from repeating itself? Um, or if you got really tight there, how are you going to do better in that next situation? Are there um, are you going to be able to slow things down, take a deep breath, use a routine? So I think having a journal that you can um, use consistently uh, as you're competing, um, as you're training as well, and then you can look back at it. And you can, uh, maybe you had a tough, a tough loss, and you look back at your journal, and a few months before you had that same tough loss. Or not, the, sorry, not the same tough loss, but you had a similar tough loss where something similar happened, where maybe you weren't able to serve out the match or whatever it was. And then you look back at the journal and you see that next week you played it in, a, in another tournament and things went better and you were able to utilize some of those mental skills that you're working on. So I think having something like that, having a journal where you can get your thoughts down on paper can really help you with that learning process. 100%. Yeah, I think um, it's a great way to build self-awareness. And I think um, if listeners have questions about how to start with journaling or different journals to use or prompts, feel free to email us. I think, you know, we both can come up with some recommendations on that. USTA player development also has a specific journal, which I believe you can get on the USTA.com website. It may take some hunting, so I could probably find that and put a link in our show notes. But I think that's a really good um, suggestion, Josh, for having people just begin to learn more about themselves. Because you hear about, oh, you should journal, you should journal. But um, I think giving people some, uh, like a starting point of the different things to think about or questions uh, can help at least get you started. Because if we look at some of the best performers in any context in the world, many of them are journalers that they have used that as a means of um, getting their thoughts out and bringing some more clarity to what's going on in their lives. And very often as you're just writing something, a thought will occur that, that moves you forward, where if you didn't actually go through that process, these things just tend to rattle around in your head and they don't bring, there's no real organization to it. And I think that's one of the great things about journaling is it helps bring some clarity and organization to to what you're doing. So any last uh, thoughts on managing our emotions? We probably, we talked a lot more on this than I thought we were going to. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we certainly did. Uh, no, I, th- I think, I think we pretty much, pretty much covered it. I mean, I think as, as you know, ho- hopefully our listeners can, can tell there's, there's, there's a lot to it. It's um, you know, I think sometimes coaches or parents, will just say, calm down, or you need to get fired up. Um, but the understanding that that is a skill, that managing your emotions and really training your um, emotion, emotional system, you could say, is a skill that has to be worked on and practiced. And there will be times and situations where you feel like you do a great job and others where maybe you fall short. But learning from those situations and being aware of, of what your emotions are on a given day. Um, uh, those are some of the, some of the big keys in my, in my view of, um, improving on that so that you can utilize your, um, control of your emotions as a tool when you're competing as a tennis player, rather than letting that detract from you. And some of these, um, as the question said, you know, people, people having outbursts or saying they can't play or, uh, you know, so, so that these sorts of things, don't happen quite as much. You have that skill of being able to control your emotions and um, being able to influence them. Right. Well, Josh, thanks for that conversation. That was really that was that was quite good. Um, 
And for our listeners, if there's something that you know we didn't cover or you have a question about what we discussed today, feel free to email us at uh, tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. We'll put more in our show notes on today's episode, so um, we'll highlight some of the things that we discussed. Uh, as a reminder, please subscribe to our podcast on your platform of choice. Uh, you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're putting up all the videos of our episodes there. Uh, as I said, tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. That's the place to send us questions and feedback. As well as on Twitter, you can use the hashtag TennisIQ. And look for our next episode very soon. 